police said the shootings appeared to be related to a domestic dispute. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big bang. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Russia increases key interest rate, the most since 1998, to stem the decline of the ruble. The S&P 500 saw its wildest day in two months as stock swings echoed October's chaos. And Asian futures slip with U.S. stocks as the crude oil sell-off fueled gains in the yen amid demand for safe haven assets. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll talk with fund manager David Goud of Ed de Rothschild Asset Management about what investments to watch out for amid the surge in global market volatility. Next, CLSA strategist Francis Chung gives us his 2015 outlook for Hong Kong and China. And finally, Victoria Allen of Habitat Property provides us some insight on niche property in the city. Financial commentator Andrew Sullivan joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Andrew. And volatility is back indeed. Stocks fell again following the worst week since September 2011. In a volatile trading session, stock, oh, stocks opened higher as the Dow shut up more than 100 points at the opening bell before reversing course and tumbling more than 100 points later in the day. The catalyst once again was oil. U.S. crude fell 3.3% to close at $55.91 a barrel. That's the West Texas price. And Brent crude is currently at $61.06. Oil has fallen by about half since June on waning global demand and abundant supplies. The recent drop to five-year lows has been roiling stock markets. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 100 points to 17,180. And the S&P 500 dropped 0.6% to 1,989. The Nasdaq Composite Index tumbled 1% to 4,600. Jason Thomas is the Director of Research at the Carlyle Group. He talks about the impact of declining oil prices on energy and business investments. It's it's disappointing because this is the lone uh, portion of the economy where you had uh, genuine growth in business investment. The the rest of the economy, uh, we're still down about 25% in net terms, again, after accounting for depreciation this year relative to uh, the pre-crisis peak. So the, the question is to what extent will some of the oil consuming industries uh, offset the decline in in energy production. So perhaps airlines, uh, trucking, other large consumers of oil could could see their uh, fixed investment pick up and, and offset it to some degree. Chad Brownstein is the CEO of Rocky Mountain Resources and one of the first to make money in the shale boom. Now he talks about how his assumptions on oil prices are driving his current investments. I think we've had an overreaction that's a function of a global margin call. When we gapped down from 100 to 75, it really was a supply and demand issue related to the OPEC strategy of not further reducing cuts. The latest gap down is a function of the financial markets coming to grips with 18 times leverage for every barrel of oil produced. 
And to give you a perspective on that, in 2008 it was 13 times. In 1997 it was three times. So we're basically unwinding the $500 billion raised right now. Investors can't understand and can't price risk on either side of the balance sheet. So I think we're going to settle in the mid-70s over time. I do believe we could gap down further from where we're at today. But all my underwriting is being done on the concept that oil is going to be somewhere in the mid-60s and mid-70s over the next 36 months. Russia's central bank has raised its benchmark interest rate to 17% from 10.5%, and this is effective today. They made the decision overnight, and it is the highest raise since the nation's 1998 default. Mikhail Khodorovsky is a one-time oil tycoon who spent a decade in prison. He spoke to Bloomberg's Ryan Chilcote in an exclusive interview from self-imposed exile in Zurich. He says that Putin has made a series of mistakes, including the annexation of Crimea. The ruble's loss of value has been rapid. It's fallen more than 45% against the dollar this year, with most... All right, uh, mix up in the Descartes there. Um, no worries. Uh, let's bring in uh, David Goud. He is a senior fund manager at Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management. Good morning, David. Good morning. So, David, lots and lots of volatility in the markets, um, more perhaps than was expected back in October when we first saw this. Or do you not agree? Is that not the case? Was it coming anyway? Well, it's clear since the third quarter we've seen a drastic change in uh, some major trends. Uh, you mentioned the U.S. equity market. Uh, I think we've been very much surprised by the very strong performance of the defensive names versus the cyclical names, which sounds quite contradictory when you think that everybody believes that the cycle is recovering in the U.S. and so one would expect the cyclical names to do better. So, yes, it's a disappointment, but at the same time, it offers some opportunity for 2015. Uh, we still believe that there are great opportunities there. And so you've got a value angle into that uh, U.S. Uh, equity, and uh, especially on the, on the cyclical names like industrial uh, materials, which are related to the housing market, which still disappointing at this point. It's true the numbers which are coming true are not that great, but we still believe that this will materialize. And then the financial names are still offering very good value in the U.S. market. So there are opportunities there. On the on the oil aspect, we think that, yeah, this is a, a collapse in prices. The thing is that we haven't seen yet the positive impacts because it takes time basically to lower oil prices true to the final consumer. And so this is something that we will see next year. But we know historically, I mean, if you go back to the 90s and look at what happened from 92 to 98, for instance, uh, the drop in oil prices created a, a massive boost and acceleration in the housing spend, uh, household spending sorry, in the US and also in Europe. So this is still to happen. Uh, this year end may be a bit complicated, but uh, this, if anything, would offer uh, buy opportunities. So that's interesting. I- I assume that it was uh, simply energy stocks uh, that might look interesting as a result of the oil drop. Andrew, what do you think? Well, I think it's right. I mean, I think one of the big questions at the moment is, though, as oil prices come down, whether the consumer uses that money to go out and spend or this time around uses it to, to pay off their debt and, and improve their own balance sheet. And I think that's something we're still waiting to see from the U.S. numbers. But certainly, you know, with oil prices, you know, trending lower, uh, it's interesting to see that BlackRock are, you know, raising money for a new energy fund because they think this is a, a good opportunity.
Do you agree with that, uh, David? Um, you've talked about uh, you know the money going into the housing sector, but uh, what do you think of BlackRock's move? Well, it, it could make sense. I mean, the, our focus, I mean, more particularly when it comes to Asia, is that right now on the energy space, uh, this is taken relatively negatively. Uh, when we talk about specifically the energy space, and in that sense, you know, we, you would stand to stay away from the super oil companies in China, like Sinopec or PetroChina. You would also avoid, actually, countries like Indonesia or Australia. But at the same time, we still see, actually, great opportunities in India, for instance. Historically, Asia has been dependent on oil imports, uh, generally. So, if anything, that overall context is extremely favorable to, to major countries, such as India and China to a certain extent. So uh, we see a lot of alternatives. Whether, you know, it's time to uh, bottom fish and go uh, buy some energy names, they maybe have not come down enough in our view. And, uh, you know, we still have to see how uh, 2015 will shape up. Uh, there's definitely going to be some cash flow issues for some of those companies. So at this stage, we still favor our trade countries which are oil dependent for their imports and which will benefit from the weak price. So, David, you think that prices are actually going to drop further into next year? No, no, we, we agree that the, the, the drop is excessive and this is more or less, uh, you know, a short-term thing. Uh, but definitely year on year, even into the second half next year, we will see actually a, a significant drop versus the average last year and of this year. So this, this is definitely positive to countries like India, which are running on the high deficit and which will see some improvement next year. What do you think, Andrew? Are you going to buy India? Well, I think India's got a lot of potential, but I think one of the other things that we have to remember with oil is that, that it's been traded as a commodity by a lot of financial institutions, uh, and, and so there's a lot of pain uh, still to be taken there as they unwind those trades. Um, you, know, you look at airlines who hedged their oil prices. Uh, now they're looking rather silly having hedged at maybe over $100 uh, with the price down here. So there's still a lot of the, the financial workings to be worked out on, on the oil situation. So, David, um, for an investor here in Hong Kong who's looking to diversify their portfolio, you know, shake things up at the end of the year, you've mentioned a few different themes, uh, oil-dependent countries, uh, money still to go into the housing sector, into the U.S. cyclicals. Where would you advise the investor really focus on, you know, if, if uh, uh, he or she had a chance just to go in one of those directions? Well, I mean, we've got a clear case here in Asia, and uh, it's due to the recent rally in the, what we call the traditional sectors. And if you look at the uh, attempt of rally in the eight shares in Hong Kong, but also what we saw in, in Shanghai, uh, all the traditional names, financials, materials, industrials, have gone up significantly. Well, we think that, uh, you know, the PBOC rate cuts uh, lately and the overall trend are not that favorable to those sectors. And in the meantime, we saw a massive rotation out of the what we call the new economy names, which are uh, related to innovation, healthcare, tourism, uh, internet, e-commerce. Those names are most of them mid-caps. Uh, they did very well over the first half. They went into that recent correction. At this point, they are offering extremely good value. And we think that this is the proper time to once again add more to those positions and prepare for 2015 because the story is not over. This rotation out of the traditional uh, engine of growth in China into the new engines is carrying on. It's a long-term process, but it's really going to pay off. 
Any specific stock names you want to give us? Well, I mean, in the environmental segment, you've got a, a lot of recent IPOs, which we think are really worth considering. Companies like Kangda, like Zhongjiang Environment. Um, and to name one further, in the education space, there was one company called Maple Leaf, which had a very bad start as an IPO, but we think which is extremely interesting as a peak at the moment. Why do you think that? This is quite different from the industrials and financials that you've mentioned before. Well, we believe that the PBOC is not cutting rate, actually, to uh, you know, boost the traditional sectors and to go back to the old recipe. I mean, this transition into the new economy and there is a clear roadmap, there's a clear agenda from the government. So as an investor, if you do follow that agenda, you're going to make money and clearly it's favoring those new sectors. Andrew, would you like to add to that at all? I think that's very true. I mean, the, 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 the central government has made it very clear that it wants to get away from being an export-driven market to a domestic consumption. And, and all the names he's mentioned there are very much domestic-related. The, again, the, the, the rate cut gives more money to the man in the street to go and spend. And the freedom to be able to do it these days, and that's the key thing. So environmental, that's because it's you know, going to be useful for his health, water stocks especially, but healthcare, education and all these new economy, they're also you know, still very much retail orientated in line with the government's More. policy. More money in the pocket heading up to the holiday season, which will, of course, continue until uh, Chinese New Year. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is David Goud. He is a senior fund manager at Edmund de Rothschild Asset Management. With the opening of Kennedy Town Station and HKU Station on the MTR Island Line in late December 2014, the feeder bus and green minibus services connecting to the new railway have been strengthened. The Transport Department has published booklets to provide information on the public transport services as well as the new transport facilities in the vicinity. For more details, please visit the Transport Department and Public Transport Operators' websites. Time is now 8.17 and let's take a quick look at the numbers for this morning. The Nikkei is down 1.4% to 16,862. Australia's ASX index is down 34 points to 5,130. In currencies, 1 euro will buy you 1.24 US dollars. The US dollar is currently trading at 117 yen and 1 pound sterling is currently valued at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 12 cents sense. Well, Investment Bank CLSA held their 2015 China-Hong Kong outlook yesterday. And among the many themes, uh, expect better days, they say, ahead for the Shanghai-Hong Kong Stock Connect. To join us for discussion now, um, we're, we're joined by uh, Francis Chung, CLSA's head of China-Hong Kong strategy. He joins us by phone. Good morning, Francis. Good morning. So, uh, Francis, could you give us an overview, perhaps, of, let's say, the top macro themes, um, you know, that you were exploring in your investment outlook for next year? I think the big macro theme that's just so obvious, I think, would be monetary easing and stimulus. What the Chinese economy is going through now is a, is a painful adjustment period because the leadership finally decided to do reforms instead of slowing credit. But you need to cushion and downside risk, and especially inflation at this level. Uh, they will likely cut interest rate and do more fiscal stimulus to give them room to do the reforms and allow the economy to move to a more stable growth plane. And this is generally positive for interest rate sensitive sectors so, in the economy. 
So at what point do you think we'll see this? You know, meaning at what point? We're expecting rate cuts perhaps uh, early in, you know, the first quarter of next year. Firstly, do you agree with that? Yes, I think so. Um, we have you know, pending one to two interest rate cuts uh, for a total 50, 50 60 uh, basis points. But I think there actually could be a room to surprise on in terms of easing, given the low commodity price we're seeing. And generally, interest rate cuts are you know, supportive of the stock market. And do you think that the fiscal stimulus follows right after that, or, or what are your thoughts? I think the fiscal stimulus has actually probably start now. I think the PBOC has been pushing off interest rate cut, mainly because they worry that a lot of cheap money will actually go to this A-share market. has already gone up 45% the last month. And uh, the fiscal stimulus has actually been announced. I think we'll start implementing it in December first quarter, and then you'll probably have a rate cut probably in, in January time frame. Andrew, your thoughts? Well, I think the, the, the PBOC is, you know, looking at this very carefully. You know, it's trying to deflate the housing market where there's still excesses in, in certain cities. Uh, it's been encouraging the stock market and seeing that, you know, reap uh, vast rewards. So it's now got to be very prudent. It's not going to spend huge amounts of money on stimulus. It's going to be much more targeted uh, as it tries to maintain this new normal of a slower growth in China. Uh, Francis, what do you think about the property situation for next year? I think that's one of the primary uh, goals with the leadership to stabilize property prices. If you look at in China, it's actually suffering a lot of deflationary pressures. And there's two reasons. One is overcapacity. Second is the property market. And while I think they can stabilize property prices by the first half of the year, a property investment will continue to decline. Uh, this is unavoidable given the inventory situation. And that will be a big drag to the economy next year. Okay. And what about anti-corruption? That's been sort of a big theme this year. Are we going to see uh, that continue into next year? Has it peaked? Yeah, our view is that um, he's probably finished with the big seniors uh, purges in terms of tigers. I'm talking about standing committee members are higher. It's it's probably peaked, but it's not going away. We'll probably see it more institutionalized, and I think the local government will probably see more pressure next year from uh, anti-corruption policies. Um, remember that the Xi Jinping himself will probably only be in office for another five, six years, right? He has a, okay. you know, uh, two terms. Okay, so those are sort of more of a macro look at next year. Now, when we come to a micro look, um, can you tell us about sort of investment themes for next year? Where should we be looking as investors? Yeah, I think you touch upon a lot of the secular long-term themes like Internet and healthcare. Um, I think these are fantastic long-term themes uh, for China. But I think in the near term, you'll probably see with the interest rate cut is that uh, the interest rate sensitive stocks like the insurance and the banks will probably perform better. And uh, you know, more longer term, I think the, uh, <clears throat> the secular themes, I think, are probably the best places to be. Andrew, do you agree? Yeah, I think there's a change in the Chinese economy. And, uh, you know, we are going to see still interest in the cyclicals and the interest rate sensitives. But certainly, you know, the, the, the restriction is for a lot of people on these small mid caps, a lot of the large funds, you know, they're just too small a, a fund size um, or for them, their funds to be able to invest in. But as that changes, as these companies grow, then I think they'll see a wider spectrum of uh, interest. Francis, what about the through train? I mean, this started off with a bang. It was really hyped up, you know, for much of the year before it actually got going. But then it seemed to have sort of fizzled out rather quickly. Yeah, I actually don't think it's necessarily negative. Um, you remember how this started off in the 
of in 2007 when this was announced and the market went up 50%. So this time around, the leadership put actually a lot of layers of control. Even though it started off relatively slow, now they know what the level of demand is. They can slowly ease and, and they, they can actually make it much more exciting than it is today. But I don't think it's necessary a disappointment from the people who designed this. All right. Well, we'll have to just uh, wait and watch and see what happens next year. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Francis Chung, and he is CLSA's head of China-Hong Kong strategy. In company news, taxi app Uber has never been far from controversy in the past few weeks. On top of a series of bans across Europe and Asia, there have been allegations of rape against one of its drivers and concerns over use of its technologies to spy on critics. The latest, Uber has hiked fares up to four times yesterday as users in Sydney logged into the app during the hostage crisis. In France, the controversial Uber Pop service, which allows drivers without a professional taxi license to register with Uber and offer trips in their own cars, uh, has been banned. The French Interior Ministry has announced this service will actually be banned as of January 1st. Now for a look at uh, another look, I should say, at property in the city. Real estate developer and consultant Victoria Allen has spent <clears throat> nearly a decade on her pet project, transforming a nine-story 1960s residential block in Kennedy Town into a luxury service department complex. She joins us now for discussion. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning. So, Victoria, your recent completed project was driven, you say, by a passion for restoration and an urge to provide something different. Can you explain how? Yeah, I think in the market in Hong Kong, um, there was just, a, a, I think, a missing a, a diversity of different products in the Hong Kong in, in terms of apartment styles that people could could lease or buy. So I set out to sort of meet that niche in providing something different. So tell us about this. The, the, the development is called... It's called <sighs> Tung Fat Building. It's the original name of the building. It's an old Tung Lao building. Okay, so Tung Fat Building and the developer, your, your company is called Habitat Property. Is Correct, that right? Yes. So tell us specifically about the building and the kind of apartments and why they are different from what we already see out there. Well, what we did, we took an old nine level Tong Lao building and modernized it. So obviously, a nine level building is not very attractive to tenants to walk up. So we went through the whole process of putting an elevator in it, upgrading all the services and making the, the, the building very contemporary and focusing a lot on the design, on the sort of new interior design of the building, but keeping the traditional elements still very much there. Now, of course, you're restricted. If, if you're restoring an old building, you're restricted by sort of the size of the apartments and the basic infra infrastructure that's already in place. Of course, you, you just mentioned that you've put in an elevator. But what are the other things that you have changed to sort of significantly change the lifestyle as it was before? Well, very much we've upgraded the interiors of the apartment. We've kept as much as we can the traditional look of the building in terms of the feel, um, you know, the internal staircases and things. But we've also, it used to be two apartments per floor, and we've made it one apartment per floor. That's now only two bedrooms with very much open living space. We've dropped the windows. We're, we've got very nice views to the water. So we've sort of brought those views in. Okay. Andrew, what do you think? Uh, do you think Hong Kong needs these... Uh different uh, sort of alternative modes of living? 
I think very much so. I mean, you only have to look at things like the porn in, in Wan Chai and the, the reconstruction there into a bar that's proved so popular. Um, there aren't very many historic buildings in Hong Kong, but you know, we had the redevelopment of the, um, uh, the central police station taking place into a hotel where they're keeping a lot of the features. So I think it's definitely something important, especially in a city that is you know, famed for having ultra-modern buildings. Ultra-modern buildings indeed, yes. With the new MTR lines opening across the city and in addition to other changes, Victoria, what areas do you recommend for new buyers to be looking at? Well, I've seen a very strong movement, particularly in the last 18 months, of our clients looking and particularly wanting to live in neighbourhoods where they can literally walk out of their apartment, go get a coffee, go and have lunch. And I think in a lot of uh, Hong Kong, I think with a lot of property developers, they remove a lot of that from the bottom of their buildings. And a lot of areas in like mid-levels or Happy Valley, you can't walk anywhere. You can't go. It's not like New York or London. And I think a lot of people are moving from those cities or have lived internationally and want to more, you know, they want to feel more connected to the city. They want to live in a neighbourhood. And we're seeing the rent levels and sales prices in those sorts of neighbourhoods really a, a tremendous growth. And those markets are holding their values and rent levels more than other sectors of the market at the moment. So do you think that when it comes to uh, Hong Kong's luxury flat or luxury home owners, they are more interested in sort of, as you say, boutique and high street style living where you can walk to restaurants and shops rather than having the big old swimming pool and sort of uh, various other facilities that you get in a luxury building? I think there's a market for both in Hong Kong. You know, obviously Hong Kong is a very international city. I mean, what is nice to start seeing in Hong Kong is the diversity of product on offer. There needs to be both for people to choose from. You can't have everyone living in a high-rise building with a pool and a tennis court. Not everyone wants to do that. There's people who want to live in, live in walk-up buildings or conversions. There needs to be greater variety of product. I'm sure Andrew wants to live in a building with a pool and a tennis court or a squash court. <laughs> yes. I've got a pool already. Okay, well, <laughs> case in point, right? Victoria, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Victoria Allen. She's the founder of Habitat Property. Well, here we are a few minutes just uh, before we close the show. Things to look out for later today, HSBC and markets flash China PMI for December. Andrew, speculation is that this number may have actually fallen to 49. And as we know that anything under 50 indicates a contraction. Are you concerned? Well, I think going into the end of the year, yes, there is still some concern. But, you know, the, the central government has heralded that uh, growth in China is slowing. So this shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and also we did have this the shutdown ahead of the APEC meeting, which will influence it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us as guest host this morning. That is Andrew Sullivan, our financial commentator, who is with us every Tuesday morning. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is now down 294 points to 16,804. Australia's ASX index down half a percent to 5,135. And Seoul's Kospi down seven-tenth of a percent to 1,907. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora closing up today for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Uh, today, the weather will be um, cold, becoming fine and dry. The maximum temperature during the day will be right around 18 degrees and temperatures will drop significantly later to around 13 degrees in urban areas. The temperature right now is uh, 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 55%. 
And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Todd Harding. The Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott has said the lone gunman behind the fatal Sydney cafe siege was well known to the authorities because of his long history of violent crime, infatuation with extremism and mental instability. Mr Abbott said Iranian-born refugee Manharon Moniz, who died along with two hostages after security forces stormed the cafe, sought to cloak his actions with the symbolism of an Islamic State. Mr Abbott gave more details about him. What we do know is that the perpetrator was well known to state and commonwealth authorities. He had a long history of violent crime, infatuation with extremism and mental instability. We know that he sent offensive letters to the families of Australian soldiers killed in Afghanistan and was found guilty of offences related to this. Uh, we also know that he posted graphic extremist material online. The two victims have been identified as a 38-year-old barrister and mother of three and the cafe's 34-year-old manager. Police in the United States are hunting for a gunman named as Bradley William Stone, suspected of killing his ex-wife and five members of her family, as well as seriously wounding another, in a series of shootings in three towns in Pennsylvania. The BBC's Barbara Plett Usher reports from Washington. In chilling sequence, Mr. Stone killed his ex-wife, Nicole, her mother, her grandmother, her sister, her sister's husband and 14-year-old.